All right, you see the big idea up there this evening? When you suffer for righteousness' sake, do it well. That's what Peter's calling us to do under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he asks a hypothetical statement at the beginning. What's the question in verse 13, the beginning of our passage? What's his hypothetical question? All right, yeah, so if you do what is good, what is right in God's eyes, who is there to harm you? Now, what do you think the answer is to that question? Uh, <laughs> say that again? Okay, yeah, depending on the culture, that's, yeah. Right, yeah, so if we remember who Peter's writing to and the circumstances that they're in, we know that for them, yeah, they have been persecuted. They've been displaced from their home. Why were they displaced from their home? Because they're Christians, right? Yeah, that's because they claim the name of Christ. And so uh, we can hear that their answer, uh, probably, as they receive this letter is, who's there to harm me for doing good? Well, um, yeah, pretty much everybody in our lives have harmed us for, for doing what is right and what is good in the eyes of God. Now, <clears throat> Is there an aspect to Peter's question, though, where the answer is, well, no one is really going to be seeking after you and pursuing you and hunting you down if you're doing good? For instance, this life that you've lived here, where you're seeking as a Christian to pursue good, not only in your personal life, not only in the church, from the community, is there anyone here right now to harm you for doing good? No. No. I mean, I'm assuming you haven't experienced that. If you have, let me know. I'd love to hear the story because uh, it does happen in the world, but here it's not happening. So how do you explain that? So you've got Peter's audience receiving the letter, and of course a lot of them would say, yeah, uh, we're pursuing good and we're being harmed for it. But then you've got your experience that says you pursue good, and that's generally, at least over the last hundred years, it's generally been rewarded in this country. So how do you explain that? How do you, how do you figure that out? That some people can answer that and say, no one, and some people can answer that and say, everyone. Okay, cultures are different. Jerry? Okay, yeah. So ultimately, what can man do to me, right? That's what the Scriptures teach us, and we're going to see that tonight more in the passage. There's also just a strange thing it's strange to us because we're finite human beings, but isn't there also God's common grace in the world where even those who don't know the Lord can advocate for good things and protect good things and even reward good things? Doesn't that happen? <laughs> uh, you think of Romans 13 where it says, the government is a minister of God to do two things, one thing with good and one thing with evil. What's the government to do? There you go. So to reward good and to punish evil. Now, how do you explain that when you've got a lot of people in a lot of governments, I'd say the vast majority of people and the vast majority of governments throughout history haven't been Christians? Well, it's God's common grace working through them, isn't it? That they're made in the image of God and through His mysterious way, He's able to restrain sin in the culture. He's able to rise up people who at heart are wicked men, fallen men, dead men, and yet they still can reward good and punish evil through God's common grace, which is pretty remarkable. And we've experienced much of that in this country, haven't we? 
how many U.S. presidents would be able to articulate the biblical gospel throughout history? That'd probably be frightening to see those stats, if that was even possible. Yet, we know that by and large, the Christian church has been protected, even promoted by our presidents and other leaders. So, it's just a very interesting thing, and it's something to ponder. I love talking about common grace because it's something we don't fully understand. So, I love being able to throw questions out there and just to think about it and never come to an answer. It's kind of fun for weirdos like me, but it's a great mystery in the world. Yet, for Peter's audience, their experience, especially their more recent experience, has been Who's there to harm you for doing good? Well, anybody who's in charge, it seems like, because here we are in Asia Minor, we're not from here, and we're here because we're Christians. And ultimately for them, the answer to Peter's question is, when he asks, who's there to harm you for doing good? The answer is, well, the wicked, whom God will judge. And we see that in this letter. Turn back to chapter 1. This has already been a theme in Peter's letter. Chapter 1, verse 17 It says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so he's already brought to their attention, brought to their mind, this idea of God's judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 21, starting at verse 21, chapter 2, 21 to 23, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and listen to what he was doing, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So once in each chapter already, Peter's brought up this idea of God's judgment. And that's a source of comfort in a lot of ways for these Christians, like Jerry was mentioning, ultimately, what can man do to them? Because God is going to judge the living and the dead. God's going to expose all people's works, and they will be judged. And so the answer to Peter's question of who is there to harm you is, well, the wicked. The wicked harm us, but God will judge them. And Peter encourages them in verse 14 to recognize the blessing in being persecuted. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, that is a counterintuitive thought. Your mind doesn't instinctively jump to, oh, being shut down because I'm pursuing God, being rejected by people because I claim the name of Christ. What a blessing! I think I'm going to go do it more because it's just such a blessing to be rejected by my community. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? But that is the message of the New Testament. That's the message of Christ. That's the message of Peter here. Can you think of a teaching of Jesus that correlates really closely to this? One of the Beatitudes. Good. Yes, that's it. Blessed blessed are you when you are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake, is what Jesus said. Let's turn back there. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Because it's... Of course, quite likely that Peter was drawing on this teaching of Christ as he was relaying the instructions onto the church. Matthew 5.10 and 11 and 12, it says, starting at verse 10, "'Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" Matthew 5.11, "'Blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when people insult you because of Jesus, rejoice and be glad. And in Peter's life, he did this, didn't he? The book of Acts. Do you remember that really strange event in Acts chapter 5? Peter and John were being thrown in jail, and after they were released from jail, they rejoiced, and it says in the text, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to be persecuted. So Peter's lived it. This isn't just theory for Peter. Peter has lived it, and now he's telling these Christians, count yourselves blessed. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, just as Jesus taught. And he also says, don't fear. He quotes Isaiah here saying, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't fear and don't be troubled. Earthly harm is no reason for fear or trouble, according to the Scriptures. Earthly harm is no reason for fear or for trouble. Each New Testament use of that word harm there in verse 13, that he's that question he started with. Each time that word comes up in the New Testament, it's in reference to God's people suffering, God's people being persecuted, God's people being marginalized, God's people being attacked by others. Every time that word is used. And Peter says, amid that type of environment, or in that type of environment, don't fear. And that's a uh, godly perspective on your circumstances, isn't it? Because we are prone to fear, aren't we? (laughs) We very quickly jump to fear and anxiety and everything else. And here our commission is, don't fear. Can you think of a teaching of Christ where perhaps Peter was drawing this from? Can you think of the times when Jesus spoke in this way? Okay, the Last Supper. Good. Yeah, in John 14, right, we see that. That's a really key section about that. John 14, 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. If I'm leaving you, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will return and take you with me. That where I am, you'll be also. What other teachings of Christ about fear or being troubled can you think of? Matthew 6, 6, about worry. Yep, also from the Sermon on the Mount. Be anxious for nothing. Uh, I think I used Paul's phrasing there, but um, do not worry about tomorrow, Jesus says. What you'll eat or drink, right? You can't make yourself taller. (laughs) You can't add a cubit to your stature. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear man who can kill the body but not the soul, but rather fear God. Jesus' teaching, who can destroy both body and soul and hell. Okay. That word for trouble that's found here, as Peter quotes Isaiah in verse 14, that word for troubled means agitated. It means stirred. Don't be all agitated. And you know what that feels like if you deal with fear and anxiety, right? Your guts feel agitated. <laughs> Your heart is all pitter-pattery, okay? 
And Peter here says, don't be all stirred up, but instead he's encouraging us to have that internal fortitude that we have through Christ, that we have from God, that inner strength that we have from God, that we wouldn't be shaken or troubled by harm, earthly harm. Thoughts on that or questions on this instruction so far? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Peter here is asking us to do a supernatural thing, isn't he? Because, again, it goes against every natural instinct we have to count earthly harm as blessing. It goes against every instinct we have to not be agitated, but to remain strong. And it goes beyond our ability to do those things. You do not have the ability to do those things, to bolt your feet to the rock of Christ. That's why that one song we sing is, He will hold me fast. Can you imagine if we flipped that around and said, I will hold him fast? Wouldn't be a lot of hope in that song, right? He holds us fast. And so, now, of course, there is an aspect in which we come to him in faith, okay? But he's the one holding on to us, isn't he? And we trust in him during those times. Logan. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, we talked, uh, yeah. Yeah, last week we prayed for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, and that's a very real question for them right now. You've got people, at least as of last week, going house to house and raping women and doing all kinds of stuff. Um, so, so, yeah, how does that play out? Well, um, I would say it is quite godly for a man to defend his own home. Uh, if a man refuses to defend his wife or his children... Um, I would like to have a long conversation with him about that. (laughs) Uh, Now, there are going to be different uh, convictions on that scale, but I think people need to be challenged. Like, for instance, uh, what was it, two, three, four years ago, um, I think it was John Piper came out and said something about not using any kind of weapons in self-defense ever thought, okay, that's pretty interesting, because <laughs> you throw some what-ifs out there, and I think that argument falls apart pretty quick. So, so yeah, um, you got to follow your conscience on that. you got to think it through. I mean, those people, again, we, it's pretty far removed. We think Afghanistan. That's a lot different than Colorado, right? It's just it's so far away, you can't think of it. But in one sense, it is next door, and our brothers and sisters there are having to think through that. So it's a good question. Okay, let's turn to Isaiah and see what Peter's quoting here. It's Isaiah chapter 8, so turn with me back to Isaiah. Put your finger in 1 Peter or uh, ribbon, whatever you have there, and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. And he quotes from, I think it's verse 12 and a little bit of 13. I thought it'd be good to read it in a little bit of a broader context. Isaiah here is being used by God to speak to a believing remnant of Israel, speaking to spiritual Israel, those who believe, they trust in Yahweh. Because you know, the first part of Isaiah, the first half, you can read through that, and it's kind of tough and depressing, (laughs) talking about God judging all kinds of people, uh, all the nations, including Israel and Judah. And hear what he says to his people through Isaiah Let's start in verse 11 and read to 15. Who can read Isaiah 8, 11 to 15? Who's got it? 
Go ahead. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand Zion. All right. So you see there, God is speaking to his people, truly his people, those who believe. And as he's speaking to them, he's calling them in verse 12 to fear not what people fear, but to fear God himself. And in verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. So for spiritual Israel, believing Israel, they were to fear God only and to live for Him amid all the suffering. All kinds of war was going on. Uh, Things were about to happen in the nation of Israel. God was judging the nations. And in the midst of all that, in that type of environment, His people were to fear Him only and to consider Him holy, that He would be a sanctuary for them. And so too... Peter applies this to the church, that the church is to fear God only and live for Him amid their suffering, amid a crooked and perverse generation, when all the nations are raging, when everyone's raging against God's people. Don't fear them. Don't fear their intimidation, but fear God only. And the way that we turn from fear, the way that we truly get our focus off of fear is to focus on another, to turn from our circumstances and to focus on Jesus. And what Peter does with this passage in Isaiah is he applies this to Jesus Christ. You see how it says here, going from 12 into 13, verses 12 to 13, where it says, don't fear. Verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Or you could say the Lord of hosts that you are to sanctify. And our instruction in our passage today is sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so not only is he giving application of that instruction to the church, but he's making reference to Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the one true God, isn't he? He is Yahweh. And so Peter can make that that application. And so uh, you can go back to 1 Peter. That's what he was quoting there from Isaiah 8. And he gets in then in verses 15 and 16 to give us three instructions and I have these up here as three things to do before persecution comes. So I don't think Peter is saying here, okay, wait until you are being harmed and now do these things. <laughs> I think he's instructing us as followers of Christ, this is what's going on in your life. Have this going on before persecution comes. And the first thing that we see is there in verse 15, the quote, uh, verse I just read, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. What does that mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart? Let's get some ideas out there. Okay, setting him apart from the other things of the world. Don't put him on the same level as anything else, right? Uh, We see in Colossians 1 that Christ is to have first place in all things or preeminence in all things. Okay. What else? Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, focusing on the person and work of Christ instead of on your circumstances. Yeah, I think it starts with understanding who Jesus is and believing in Christ. I think that's, when we think about how do you sanctify Christ in your heart, You can't do that apart from understanding who He is and believing that He is who He is, right? You just, you can't sanctify Christ 
without first believing in him and trusting in what he has accomplished on your behalf. But it also means, too, that we live from a position of submission to his authority. Because it's not just sanctify Christ in your hearts. He could have said that. But he added this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Okay, that word for Lord means the Lord, the one true God of the universe, the creator God, the one who has all authority and power and rule and reign, the capital K King. Sanctify Christ in your heart. Live from a position of submission to His ultimate authority as God. It means to treasure Christ. How do you sanctify Christ in your heart? Well, you you treasure Christ and all that He's given to you in the gospel. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you a commission. He's given you all that you have because He's God and He gives generally, without holding, uh, generously, not generally, generously without holding back. And so I think sanctifying Christ includes all of those aspects. But I may have missed an, an angle or an aspect. You guys have any more thoughts after throwing those thoughts out there? Yeah. Yeah, that he would have preeminence in all things. Absolutely. Now, how is this different than the phrase, because perhaps you've, you're familiar with the phrase, to make Jesus Lord of your life? Okay. Maybe you've heard that before. Um, you'll sometimes hear it in the context of, well, this person's a, a Christian, this person just hasn't made Jesus Lord of his life yet. If you're familiar with that, uh, what are your thoughts on that? If you're not familiar with that, I'll just explain it to you. But anybody familiar? Giggly, giggly Andy, are you familiar? Okay, no. Giggly Andy, do you have thoughts? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the teaching that says there are spiritual Christians and carnal Christians, which we've come across quite a bit in um, the book of 1 Corinthians as we think through application. You know, the, 1 Corinthians 3 is the big passage that people will use for that teaching. Uh, what gets kind of baked into that teaching, though, is that you've got spiritual Christians who not only have believed the gospel, but then they've gone the extra step of then making Jesus Lord of their lives. Then you have carnal Christians who have just believed the gospel and haven't done the other step yet. Now, um, kind of what's implied by that teaching is that spiritual Christians are super believers who do lots of mature things, and they're not carnal. And carnal Christians are just like on life support throughout this Christian life, just like barely have a pulse. But they have a pulse, it's just they barely have a pulse. When really the truth is, the Christian life is both of those things, isn't it? Which Christian doesn't have some sort of a mixture of spirituality and carnality going on right now? <laughs> and doesn't it ebb and flow in the Christian life too, where there are seasons where it's like, I'm making progress, and then there are seasons like, what am I doing? Right? Isn't that the Christian life? And so um, this whole idea of, you know, make Jesus Lord of your life, well, first of all, He already is. So it doesn't matter what you say. He already is. Uh, believer and unbeliever alike, he is. Um, the second thing is, <clears throat> are you a Christian or not? It's not, are you a Christian plus 
or are you just a carnal Christian or what? It's, are you a Christian, meaning have you truly believed the gospel? That's it. And, uh, and when you have truly believed the gospel, you'll start understanding what it means to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, which isn't, okay, uh, now that I've been a Christian for five years, I'm going to give you the keys to my car and let you drive because I've gotten to know you a little bit and now I trust you, Jesus. That's not what Christianity is. Uh, that person never understood the gospel in the first place. Christianity is, uh, the gospel is recognizing that Jesus is who he said he was and bowing the knee from the beginning to King Jesus. That's what the gospel is. And it's continually through our lives then that we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. It's continual. It's not this one-time event of, okay, I got saved here, but then I made Jesus Lord of my life here. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. How it works is I believe the gospel and Jesus saved me and He's in me, through me, working in my life ever since, okay? So it's a continual charge then for the Christian to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's our continually being refreshed in our minds to take our focus off of our circumstances and off of ourselves and put our focus on Jesus, okay? Thoughts or questions on that, sanctifying Christ as Lord in our, in our hearts. That's it, yeah. I mean, it's a lifelong pursuit. I mean, this is sanctification, right? Um, yeah, another aspect of that teaching of carnal Christians and spiritual Christians is spiritual Christians are being sanctified and carnal Christians aren't being sanctified. All Christians are being sanctified, okay? There aren't a group of Christians that get to just, like, not be sanctified. But, you know, and then they'll get to heaven, they'll have to wash floors for eternity, but they're still in heaven. <laughs> That's kind of like the teaching, and it's just not, not what the Scriptures teach. Um, we are all, if we're Christians, we are all uh, growing in our sanctification, seeking to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? On point one, Dean. And even then, with, when we go on to glory, we might look back and look at our last day on earth and think we still were just scratching the surface in our understanding, right? So, yeah. Char, did you have a thought? It's, it just comes to understanding the gospel. Can you un truly understand the gospel if you don't recognize Jesus as Lord? No, I mean, that's like a key part of the gospel, right? Um, now, like Dean was just saying, throughout our lives, we understand the ramifications of that more and more, right? And I think at the end of your life, you're just starting to understand. If you get a long life as a Christian, at the end of your life, you're just starting to understand some of the major ramifications, perhaps, because it is a deep thing where it touches every aspect of our being. But um, we don't want to get caught up in the idea that there are junior Christians and mature Christians. That's just not a, not a biblical teaching. Okay? Second thing that we see here is not only sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, but always be ready to make a defense, to give a defense. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always, whoops, always be ready to give a defense. All right. What is the word for defense that's here? You guys know this Greek word. 
Always be ready to give a defense. What's the Greek word for a defense? Mm-hmm. Technically, in the Greek, it's apologia, but yeah, sure. Apolo- it's where we get our word apology. Uh, so not like saying, oh, I'm sorry, apology. Peter's not saying, always be ready to, to tell people you're sorry. <laughs> That's not what he's saying, but rather to make a defense for the hope that is in you. It means to speak in a way that gives an account. You're, you're speaking, speaking, so it, it, it comes from the word that means to speak. It's not like living in such a way that defends your faith, but it's actually using your words to give an account for the hope that is in you. And we see that type of idea in this book in the next chapter. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 5. But this is a much different scenario. Let's look at verse 4. 1 Peter 4, 4. In all this, they, the unbelievers, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. But they will give an apologia, an account, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And there's our theme of judgment again. But in the same sense that the unbelieving world is going to give an account to God, it's the same idea for the Christian here and now, we're to give an account for the hope that is in us to all who ask it from us. And there are other accounts that we will give as Christians. Um, I have these scriptures written down, but I think... We might not have enough time for those. I've got some questions to ask too. So um, maybe we'll look at one. Look at uh, Romans 14. Let's just turn back to Romans 14, verse 12. Romans 14. We'll start at verse 10. Romans 14, 10. Would someone read verses 10 to 12 of Romans 14? All right, so there's the same theme from the same root word. Verse 12, each one giving an account of himself to God. And so that's in the Christian's future. The other verses I had written down, uh, one is Hebrews 13, 17, where it talks about obeying your leaders because they keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Same idea. They have to give an account, uh, particularly as leaders in the church. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that men will give an account for every idle word they speak. So, giving an account, that same idea there. And Peter here, though, in our context, so as we think about all these different types of scenarios of giving an account and what that looks like, focus on this scenario where Peter says, always be ready to make a defense or to give an account to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What opportunities do you think would arise in their situation, the stuff that we know about these believers, what opportunities would arise where people would be asking them for the hope that is in them, to give an account for the hope that is in them? All right. So, yeah, if they're doing well and and following Peter's instructions in the verses before, rejoicing and counting themselves blessed amid persecution, that might cause some people to ask questions, right? Hey, I saw you click your heels together after you got whipped. What's up with that, <laughs> right? Uh, it's caricature, but you get the point. Uh, yeah, what's, what's going on with you? Why are you so different? What else? Yeah, the content of their faith was just absolutely unique in that culture. 
There are lots of beliefs of all kinds of things, but when you go about talking about the risen Jesus, who's no longer dead, he rose again, never to die again, and he is Lord. Yeah, that, if, if you're subscribing to that and to that movement, that's going to cause some questions. Uh, Christianity was not the most popular religion of the day. It was not the most popular group um, among the leaders there. And so if you were willing to associate yourself with that group, you'd get some questions. Yeah, Melissa? Yeah, when it comes to formal charges, uh, you think of that in the life of Christ too, where they're being persecuted wrongly, and there they are at an actual trial before actual leaders, and you might be asked to, hey, explain yourself. And what an opportunity. And yeah, we saw that when we went through the book of Acts, those last few chapters of Acts, it was like Paul was in front of a different leader every time. And there he was with an opportunity to proclaim to the rulers of this age, here's what I, what I believe about Jesus, and here's my defense for the hope that is in me. And it's important to recognize, and your answers reflect this, that Peter's not talking about academia. Peter's not talking about becoming a doctor in apologetics, which there's nothing wrong with doing that. You can go get a doctorate uh, in defending the faith, but that's not what Peter has an immediate view in this text. Peter's talking about you, me, all of us, regular people, not people with a whole bunch of letters after our names that show that we're super studied to give a defense. But Christians who might be persecuted for Jesus' sake, always be ready to give an account, to speak an account for the hope that is in you. So that's an important reminder. Peter here isn't saying, hey, some of you need to go to seminary. (laughs) That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying each one of you needs to be ready in the church to give a defense. And not only to just give a defense, throw it out there like a machine gun, but to do so in a certain way, to give a defense or to give an account with what two things? Meekness, good, or gentleness, and fear or reverence or respect. Okay? That is how Christians are to go about giving a defense. That word for gentleness or meekness is found in this very chapter. Look up at verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. Speaking to the Christian wife, her adornment must not be merely external, but her adornment is to be with the imperishable quality of a gentle, there's our word, and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Where do we get our gentleness as Christians? Good. How do you know that, Andy? Okay, yeah, that's true. Very good. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Gentleness. Gentleness. Love, joy, peace, patience. And gentleness is one of them. And we also see gentleness, we talked about this when we went through verse 4, but we see gentleness in the life of Christ when He described His heart, right? For I am gentle and lowly at heart. So the very character of Christ, the very nature of Christ was to be gentle, gentle and lowly. And not just with gentleness, but also with reverence, okay, with gentleness and with reverence or fear or respect. Anybody have a different word besides reverence, fear, or respect? I think that probably covers them. 
with hope. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I was going to say, they, they were getting uh, kind of licentious with the translation there. But no, that's good. Okay. Yeah, it's the word phobos, where we get phobia, that same word. Um, that word gets used quite a bit in the New Testament, so the context really determines. But um, as you think about that, that particular word, reverence or respect or fear, why do you think we're called to give an account with fear? You can, you can probably understand gentleness, right? I mean, it makes sense in human relationships that gentle is better. A soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs, you know, we, we get that. But what about the fear or respect or reverence part? What's, what's that about? <laughs> okay. What is the opposite? What does the opposite look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, if you think through a few scenarios, uh, the ones we we're bringing up, okay, if they are on trial before their earthly rulers, they're to respect their earthly rulers, right? Uh, we read through that in chapter 2, verse, uh, let's see, chapter 2, verse 13, they're supposed to submit themselves to every human institution. They are to, in verse 17, honor the king. That's the same word, phobos to fear, respect, revere the king, okay? Um, if they are being beaten, whipped, harmed physically, who are they fearing whenever they're giving a defense? They're certainly not fearing fellow man, right? In the same sense that they fear God. What's, what's going on there? How do you... How do you properly have fear in that type of situation. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. Yeah, and so there is an idea where there's a base level respect for all of our fellow image bearers, where we don't treat people like animals in any sense. Uh, no matter how much they're acting like it, okay, we don't treat them that way. We respect the fact that they're made in the image of God. Um, but ultimately, you know, as Andy was saying, we, we do get that fear when we're sharing. A lot of us kind of builds up in you because you're probably in that moment feeling the weight of being an ambassador for Christ, talking about something holy, the most important conversation you could have with somebody when you're talking to them about Jesus. And so there's that tension that's there that's appropriate. Uh, if you never feel that type of weight or that type of, I don't want to say pressure, I don't want you to think pressure, but that type of um, just fear in your heart, uh, then you're probably not understanding the depth of what's going on. You know, going back again to the verse I read earlier <clears throat> from the first chapter of First Peter, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And I think that's the same idea here. It's this general attitude toward God through your life that you're considering very seriously what you're doing with your life, right? 
and you're seeking, especially in those moments where you're uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord in the sense of being uh, the feet of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ, by imparting the gospel message through the Great Commission, you should feel that godly fear in those moments. So, um, now as we think of that, think about that, uh, giving a defense, always being ready to give a defense, what should it look like to give a defense? When someone asks, because remember that's the, that's the situation Peter sets up, is when someone asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, what do you say? This is important. We don't want to leave without this application point, okay? Uh, I think Peter here is assuming you'll know what to say, right? You're a Christian, so what, what do Christians say when they're asked about the hope that is in them? Yeah. Oh. Wide open door, huh? <laughs> At work. Wow. Yeah, a lot of a lot of times we you know, we pray for just one conversation with one person at work, and to have here's a lunch with all everybody you're working with. There they are. Go ahead and say that's that's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And that, I think, indicates uh, this part of the statement. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. But that, that, I think, speaks to the point of always being ready, too. Because you'll never know if you're at work or if you're at some sort of a party or wherever you may be, just in your backyard, mind your own business, whatever it is, and all of a sudden a conversation pops up. Are you ready? Well, Peter says, always be ready. And so that's you know, one of the indicators that this is before persecution comes. Always be ready to give a defense, to speak an account of the hope that is in you. Okay, and the third thing that we see here in verse 16, what's the third thing? Can you see it? Someone say it. Good. Keep a good conscience is what Peter calls us to do here by God's inspiration, to keep a good conscience. It says in verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So, the conscience is an amazing thing to study. I, that's another topic I really like to talk about is the, and think about, is the conscience of the human soul. And there's one sense in which your conscience, when you got saved, was cleansed once for all by Christ. When you got saved, uh, this is the book of Hebrews talks about this, when you got saved, your conscience was made clean forever, never to be dirty again which is amazing, right? This is the freedom that we have in Christ. This is the ultimate expression of grace in Christ, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your conscience, in that sense, is absolutely cleansed, never to be defiled ever, ever again. Um, But we're also given this 
verse 16, and some other places, to keep a good conscience. So, we're not told to re-clean our conscience. We don't need to do that, but we're to keep a good conscience so that those who are reviling us will be put to shame. All right, so let's think through this a little bit. Um, We'll come back around to what it means to keep a good conscience, but let's focus on the so that. Remember, every time you see so that in the text, it denotes purpose, okay? So Peter's saying, do this for this end. What's the end of keeping a good conscience? It's that those who are reviling us and slandering us will be put to shame. So you can think about this under trial, right? If you are uh, formally being charged of something and you're under trial and say there's a, a fair, somewhat fair investigation, if you have a good conscience, if you've not been doing something you haven't, been, you haven't supposed to be doing, or you weren't supposed to be doing, butchered that sentence, uh, if you were you know, doing what you were supposed to be doing and the people really were lying about you, it would come out that they were slandering, that they were lying about you. If you've kept a good conscience, it will become evident that they are wrong and they will be put to shame in that sense. And you could confidently defend yourself when you're being accused. Do you know what? It's just one of the worst feelings when you're being accused of something and they're right, but you don't want to admit it. Or they're part right. Maybe they're accusing you beyond what you've actually done, but you've done some of it and you're just there and you don't want to admit it. You don't want to confess and you don't have a good conscience. You can't really defend yourself confidently. But so, so those are some situations you can think through, but ultimately, they will be shamed at the judgment of God, won't they? They will be judged by God, and they will be put to shame ultimately then, because there will be many situations in this life where you'll be slandered, where you'll, you'll be accused, and there won't be justice in this life. Our ultimate justice comes after this life, and so we await the ultimate putting to shame of uh, God's judgment. Melissa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of that comes back to motives, what our intentions are, um, the things that other humans just can't see, and then, yeah, disagreements on what is appropriate, what is wise, what is foolish. Uh, this is one of my favorite verses that I've taken to heart out of the First Corinthians sermon series. This is First Corinthians 4, 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I love that verse. There's a lot of hope in that verse. That, uh, yeah, through this life, there's going to be a lot of judgment flying around all over the place. There's going to be a lot of accusation, slander, reviling, a lot of that going on. But in the end, what's going to happen? Lord Jesus is going to bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness, the deeds done in darkness, and He's also going to disclose the motives of each one's heart. For those slandering and reviling, that'll be a day of great shame, won't it, for them? And for those who are seeking to live for Christ, um, we have nothing to fear in that day. Those who have been saved, we have nothing to fear. There's no condemnation for us. So we need to go about this life keeping a good conscience. So how do you keep a good conscience? We have about five minutes left. Let's answer this question. How do you keep a good conscience? Because uh, he doesn't just say keep a conscience. You, you guys, uh, some of you met, uh, were here when Scott Lance was here. Often, uh, Scott Lance, you would leave meeting with him and he'd say, have a day. 
<laughs> he wouldn't say, have a good day, just say, have a day. <laughs> uh, so Peter could have said, keep a conscience, but he said, keep a good conscience. How do you keep a good conscience? Okay, good. Um, yeah, so I, I have that as step two. I have three things listed. That's number two. I had number one, not sinning. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Um, and of course, you know, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek because you're never going to live a life free from sin. You're not. However, you do have choices to make through this life, right? It's not like every sin is unavoidable. Every sin is avoidable, okay? Now, again, you're not going to live a life free from sin, but each time you have a decision to make. And so as you grow, as the Lord grows you, as you're conformed more and more to the image of Christ, you will see growth in those areas uh, of your life where perhaps there are sins that have so easily ensnared you that you begin to lay aside, right? And that helps you keep a good conscience. But because you're not perfect and because you will sin again, the second way is to repent often. Good. What else? Yeah, good. Good. Um, if we are being consistent in that area, right, um, we're going to live a life with a good conscience, generally speaking, if we are sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. And I have a, a the last thing on here um, for keeping a good conscience is making restitution when you wrong somebody. So it's one thing to not sin. That'd be great. <laughs> okay. Now, if you do, it's also great to repent. That's good and appropriate. But then to also make it right with anybody you may have offended. That's full circle integrity at that point. Uh, you know, say you cheat your neighbor somehow. Whatever comes to your mind, you cheat your neighbor. Okay, you've done it, and then you repent of it. Those are all good things. Now make it right. Because later on, your neighbor finds out, maybe you never talked to your neighbor about it, you talked to God about it, but you never talked to your neighbor about it, and now it comes out, and you're going to have an issue. To go the extra mile and make it right uh, is good and will help you to keep a good conscience. So those are the thoughts I had on that. Um, repenting and making restitution, very important aspects. When he says keep a good conscience, yeah, I think it has all of those implications. I think it does. Um, because here's this community being persecuted, and, you know, we don't have, out of Asia Minor in A.D. 60, whatever it was, 65, 60 to 65, we don't have a lot of detail, but you just, you'd have to imagine there would be a lot of opportunities for them to return insult for insult, like he instructed us not to do last week, to return evil for evil, he instructed us not to do last week. But if they did, not only were they to repent, I think they were to make it right. If they returned evil for evil, uh, it's going back and saying, look, um, and, and what an opportunity also to give an account for the hope that is in you when you make something right. When you go to somebody who perhaps doesn't know the Lord and you say, I did this and it was wrong, and here's why it was wrong. Let me tell you what I believe, why that's wrong. Um, and I want to ask your forgiveness. You know how powerful that is as a testimony, to ask forgiveness from somebody? So, yeah, I think 
That's a key element. Yeah. 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 And um, when we think about integrity in the Christian life, how important is integrity? And this isn't just Christians who recognize this, right? The world recognizes this. It's important. Uh, But how much more so for Christians? Bearing the name of Christ, being ambassadors for Christ, being lights in the world, being salt. Integrity is important, which doesn't mean be perfect, but it means do what's right. Yep. Yes. That's it. I mean, we want the, the world that disagrees with us, we want their content, the, the contention that they have, the anger that they have, we want that to be uh, not against us because of something we've done wrongly against them. We want their contention to be against Christ alone. We want Christ to shine through us. We don't want to... He gives enough offense on His own. He doesn't need our help, right? Uh, he, uh, he's the one with whom they have the issue. We don't need to get in His way and sin against people, not make it right, uh, to, to go about um, doing the wrong thing so that they have a legit beef with us. We want them to see that their issue is with Christ alone. And that means for the Christian, again, not being perfect, but making things right when, when things go wrong, uh, by having integrity, by repenting and making restitution, okay? Final thoughts or questions as we close? Starting to get dark earlier. It used to be really bright when we would stop. Now it's getting darker. So I should pray so you can go home and get, tuck yourselves into bed. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to be here, to look into your word, to do so in safety and comfort. We ask that we would not take these things for granted, but that we would leverage these things, these gifts that you've given us for your kingdom and do what we can with the gifts you've given us. Please cause us to see how we can apply these teachings that we've uh, gleaned from your word, how we can apply these tomorrow, how we can apply them tonight. Please give us that insight through your spirit and cause us to live for you with a holy passion that we would seek after you in every area of life that we have for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.